Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. And we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. 
At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this, your very word. Grant us now, we pray, your Holy Spirit, that we would understand it. Illumine us, O Lord. Bring us into presence with your living Christ, that we would know your great love and great call upon our lives. Jesus, thank you that you are gracious to all that come to you in faith through and through. Father, be glorified in this ancient exercise of the reading and preaching of your scriptures, we pray. For your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I went back for one reason or another and listened to some really early on sermons from Liberty Collingswood back in the Collingswood Senior Community Center just down the street from here. Some of you were there, others were not. And one of the things that struck me from going back and listening to the old sermons was that I did a lot of crowdsourcing. If you were there in the community center, I preached from a music stand basically in the middle of the room with rows of folding chairs very, very close all in front. So I took that proximity to ask a couple of questions of the crowd. I'm going to do that here. And it just might work. Here's a crowdsourcing question for you. There's a buddy of mine that I went to high school with. He's in Los Angeles now. He works in the entertainment industry. And he's told me that when he talks to people in the industry, there seems to be somewhat of a consensus as to what the show, the TV show, over the past two or three years has captured the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age more than any other for this period. One show that is the show of our time over the past two or three years. So I'll ask you, you want to take a guess as to what that show is, whether regular network TV, cable, or streaming services, what has been the show of our age? You'll have to talk a little louder. What was it? No, uh, more recently than that. Ted Lasso. So I, I heard it from back there. Okay, there we go. So, you should be industry moguls, those of you who said Ted Lasso. If you don't know what the show Ted Lasso is, it's streaming on Apple Plus. stars Jason Sudeikis as an American football coach, kind of bumbling but incredibly sweet and tender-hearted, who's brought to England to coach a football football team, a soccer team over there, and comedy ensues. And so if you've seen Ted Lasso, it's an incredibly light and breezy and optimistic and fun TV show about which people that actually work in TV say, this is the show that's put lightning in the bottle for this moment. And that might actually seem, whether or not you've seen Ted Lasso, but think about a show that's incredibly breezy, fun, hopeful, and optimistic. You might think, is that really the show of our age right now? Because look around. Things are really grim. Politically, things are incredibly ugly. The pandemic persists. Why is Ted Lasso a show that captures the spirit of the age? And I think the reasoning goes like this. We need a break. We need a break. Life is so dark and grimy and sad and hard. It's great to be able to tune into a TV show for a sense of reprieve for a little bit of escape, 
to remember what it's like when everybody was not so angry at everybody else all the time. This is a show where people, at least occasionally, are listening to their better angels. We want to live in a world like that. In my opinion, for stories to stick, no matter the media, so whether it's a TV show or a book or a movie or a story of some other kind, my take is need to do a couple of different things, at least. For a story to stick and connect with us, it needs both to be able to reflect and then also project. Needs to be able to reflect. When, whether it's galaxies far, far away in alien races, at some level, it needs to reflect what's human. Needs to be a human story. Recognizable issues, recognizable foibles, recognizable problems. To reflect life as it really is, but then also to project forward. This is what we could be. This is a glimpse of hope into a world that works better and more right. This is where we want to go. And different shows will have different combinations of those things that are successful, but you can't have only one. If you have a story that's only reflective of the grit and the grime of the world, but no projection of hope at all, we just get ground down by a story like that, right? It's so dark. But then on the other hand, if it's a story that's only everything is awesome all the time, no struggle, no drama, no hardship, that world has nothing to do with our world. We need both. And even a story like Ted Lasso, there are people with problems. There are people with struggles trying to muddle through. So we need both some semblance of reflection and projection. And what do we know in this story here from Genesis chapter 4? It's a long story. This is one of my favorite passages, stories in all of the Bible, because it has this both. It has the reflection of who we are and where we are, and also a projection. What if, what if there's more? So this is a story of Cain and Abel. Hope you didn't get too attached to Abel. Because he doesn't last very long. Abel kills him, our first murder, and then the aftermath. And so this is a story that reflects, it's a grisly story that reflects our grisly reality. So it's dark. But that's not all. There are silver linings of God's grace and mercy and hope woven into a story as grisly as this one that says, by the grace of God, our world can be better and different so we can live with hope by the security that God offers for us. And look, I continue to do a lot of wrestling and praying and considering, reading, listening, thinking about what's the role of the church in this crazy world that we're living in right now? What's the role of preaching as life moves forward? And here's a word that I've been coming back to recently. It doesn't come from the scriptures. It actually comes from the entertainment industry. But I think it's a good word. Preachers need to be world builders. We need to be world builders. World building, whether it's designing video games, whether it's writing a story, whether it's doing a movie, where there isn't just this little atomistic slice of story here, but this little slice of story indicates and pretends 
entire world. The story occurs within a larger context. We want to know more. We want to be there. That's what I want to do with every sermon. There is a world around all of this. It's God's world. And you know what? Life is pretty crazy. That's why we love Star Wars. Didn't love Book of Boba Fett? But if you go back to the good Star Wars, if you can remember back that far, Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader is going after Han Solo, what is it, five bounty hunters all lined up? They're not even named, but they're of these different races. And you think there are worlds within worlds with all of these characters. The scriptures present to us a world. But what if this is the real world? What if the secular world out there, whether it's a secular world leaning to the left or leaning to the right, what if that's the matrix? What if that's not how reality really is? What if what those worlds promise, they can't actually deliver? What if those premises don't reach the conclusions to which they're intending? What if with all of these secular narratives out there, what if the emperor has no clothes? This is God's world. And I believe that God's world doesn't make sense without God's word. Without the scriptures guiding and interpreting and framing and forming the world and us. That's a third way walk in worldview where we're molded by what God has shown us. And what if, again, becoming a follower of Jesus is a little bit like taking the red pill, a little bit like waking up and coming to see reality as it truly is. And again, Genesis chapter 4, this story here, it's got it all. It's got it all of life and the reflective messiness of who we are but then also what we could be. In this story, we find both guilt and grace. And so let's talk about the story in those two parts from here, owning our guilt, and then also pursuing the grace of God. So this is still the fall. The fall began, if you're tracking along here at Liberty Collingswood, in Genesis chapter 3, we had fall, and then more fall, and then even more fall after that. Eric Mitchell preached the second part of Genesis chapter 3, yesterday, and things continue to get worse. Our world is cursed through sin. Eric mentioned last week, and it's such an important passage in terms of how the New Testament interprets and, and gives. This is, this is what our world is from Romans chapter 5, where the apostle said there, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, this is original sin. We are cursed in what we've done wrong. It's inherited from generation to generation. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, we are by nature children of God's wrath. That's really bad news. And there's alienation. Alienation from human beings to God. Alienation within ourselves. Alienation between people. And then also alienation between us and nature. That alienation keeps accelerating and getting worse. Alienated from other people began last time, where God seeks after Adam and Eve after they take the fruit. God asks the man, what did you do? And he blame shifts. Well, God, 
that woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So if that alienation there is a function of blame, now the alienation between people is a function of blood. Our first murder. And even within the span of Genesis chapter 4 here, murder itself accelerates from the first murder to a lot more. Lamech, a descendant. Ada and Zillah, verse 23. Hear my voice. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Things get bloodier. And the central drama of this story is easy enough to comprehend and wrap our minds around. Two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel based on the rendering of these sacrifices. Cain offers a sacrifice to God. Abel offers a sacrifice to God. It goes like this, starting in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And in the history of interpretation here, this passage is notoriously opaque about why. Why was Abel's offering good and Cain's not so good? doesn't really say in this passage. We go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, where the author of the book of Hebrews says, well, it looks like that it's not a function when we think about these sacrifices. It's not a matter of the hall of the offering, but the heart of the offering. Abel offered his sacrifice to God in faith, Cain did not. That's why Cain got angry and murdered Abel. And we can recount this story to ourselves with a series of ironies. This is an ironic story, tragically so. Irony, for starters. Cain is born to Eve with the help of the present Lord. And by the end of his story, he's driven from God's presence. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But then after the murder, verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which means wandering east of Eden. Irony as well. Cain is a worker of the ground, and that's what he's cursed from. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground, just like his dad. But this is where he's cursed. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer lead, yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Irony, that famous question, am I my brother's keeper? There's that exchange in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And if you read closely through this passage, Brothers a motif over and over again. It's not just Abel who's killed Cain, but Cain, you've killed your brother Abel. Not coincidentally, God asks, where is Abel your brother? And then what does Cain say back? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Ironic because kind of no, but kind of yes. Am I my brother's keeper in the sense that do I have authority over my brother? Am I babysitting him all the time? No. But you've gone from being a keeper of your brother to being a killer of your brother. Yes, you're responsible for him in the sense that you should care for him. Be for his good. Be about him and what he needs. You've whacked him. Irony as well. 
Maybe you heard it the first time when I read through the passage when Cain was complaining to God about his punishment. That's verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and your face, from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. What's the irony there? God, this punishment is really hard for me right now. You put this mark on me. I've been punished. And wait a second, when people see me, they're going to kill me. And God, we all know the killing isn't right, right? Says the dude that just killed his brother. And then also irony. Does Abel speak in this story? Kind of no, but kind of yes. You may not have caught the first time. Abel has no lines in this story. It's only Cain that speaks. But then again, verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel, though he dies, his blood yet speaks. So all of these ironies, and tragically so. Murder, killing, death. That's what our world is. Even at the level of murder itself, it's still happening. I was on a Zoom call recently with other pastors in our Liberty Network, and the pastors in Philly are saying that gun violence, again, is becoming more of a thing in the city. Murders are on the rise. And I remember years ago when we moved here, pretty much just when we hit the ground, there was the killing spree at the Sandy Hook School where 20 children were killed. It, it, it rocked the country, including where we were here in Collingswood. And in God's providence, our family, this is before Liberty Collingswood launched, we were at Epiphany Church in Camden the Sunday after, and there was layer and layer upon grief. One layer was sadness and grief and anger that these kids in Sandy Hook were killed, but another layer, that year, Camden was on track for a record number of murders in the city of Camden. And there was another level of anger and feeling of abandonment there. And I asked people about it after the service, and they said, we're really sad for the children that were killed in Sam Sandy Hook, but more kids have been murdered in Camden this year so far. And does anybody care? Life is hard. And this story reflects the grisly nature of our reality. One of my favorite contemporary authors, Zadie Smith, said this about our world. Only the willfully blind can ignore the history of human existence and simultaneously the history of pain, of brutality, murder, mass extinction, every form of venality and cyclical horror. No land is free of it. No people are without their bloodstain. No tribe entirely innocent. But this is where I would begin to diverge from some of my secular friends. We agree that there's pain. But is there really such a thing as guilt? Is there really such a thing as wrong? Can you really call it evil? You've heard me say this before in sermons, but I continue as I read, as I pray, as I wrestle. I think it's true. If our world, if our universe is just a blind process of atoms colliding for a little while and separating again, 
of random thing after random thing after random thing forever, it's a category error to call something good or something bad. It's just there. There's no such thing as a good constellation of stars or a bad constellation of stars. We might make aesthetic judgments and say, well, this is good in the sense of being prettier than that one, but they're just blind stars, not intended or purpose to be one way or another way. I love cheeseburgers. There's no such thing as a good cheeseburger or an evil cheeseburger. I might like some more than others, but to get to good and evil and say this is wrong, you need to talk about the cook. This cheeseburger is laced with arsenic. It's poison. That's an evil cheeseburger. Not because of the burger itself, but because of the intent. And if all this is is blind process, I guess we've just got to trust the process, right? But also, that's a category error because there's nothing to trust because it's truly blind. Can we call it evil? as our every intuition and our bones says that it is. The Sandy Hook, the killings in Camden, the murder of Abel. This is wrong. And you need the scriptures to be able to make sense of a reality like that. And apart from God being our author, there's no hope to project as well. Do we trust that things are going to get better apart from a good God? I say no. This little space rock upon which we're spinning is going to keep going until it stops, and that's the end of the story, unless there is a good God behind this mess. We need the scriptures. We need the scriptures to make sense of our reality. The scriptures are also crucial in terms of being able to balance blame. Now, these are some huge generalizations here, but bear with me. As we think about trends all over our world as to where to assign blame, the way that I see it, there's a tendency here in the late modern West to externalize all kinds of blame. It's never my fault. It's always everybody else's fault. And we might disagree about whose fault it actually is externally, but we agree it's not mine. Tell me about your father and so on. It's never my fault. It's everybody else's. But then, and remember I said this is a huge generalization, there are some Eastern traditions, honor and shame cultures, where if you individually do one thing wrong, you bring, honor, you bring dishonor and shame upon your whole family, upon your whole community, upon your whole town. That over-internalizes guilt and shame. But the Bible balances and says there's mess out there. That doesn't mean we always get it exactly right when we apportion blame. But it is freeing, and we have the scriptures behind us to be able to name the blame outside and also own the blame on the inside. And apart from that balance, we're just going to accelerate the externalizing or accelerate the internalizing. But we can ask. You might say, well, I've never killed anybody. I was going to say perhaps most of us in the room are able to say that or online. But not so fast. Jesus of Nazareth in the Sermon on the Mount says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever commits murder is liable for judgment. Right? But I say to you, 
everyone who is angry against his brother, who commits murder in his heart against brother or sister, will be liable for judgment. What guilt should you own? Where it's not this person's fault, not that person's fault, not this structure's fault, not that structure's fault. When Yvonne introduced the confession of sin, she did wonderfully in saying, if we don't own our mess and our wrong against another, whether another person or God, the relationship stays broken. What must you own? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's another set of sins. And look, as we gather for worship, whether here or online, and we get to that silent confession part, and you draw a blank, which happens to me sometimes, we're not trying hard enough to actually own our guilt and shame. What guilt do we hold when it comes to not being our brothers and sisters' keepers? Do you know who said later in the Bible story, I'm not my brother's keeper? The priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. Rode from Jerusalem down to Jericho, this person beaten up, bloodied, left for dead, the ostensible good guys, priest and Levite. Am I my brother's keeper? No. Where is your circle of responsibility too small? And to ask the question is to have the answer. Am I my husband's keeper? Am I my wife's keeper? Am I my children's keeper? Am I my parents' keeper? Am I my neighbor's keeper? Am I my friend's keeper? Am I my family's keeper? Am I my community's keeper? Expand your circle of care. Where are you passing by on the other side? Own your guilt. But then also we can pursue the grace of God. To me, as I read this story, the hinge verse of this whole chapter is that Mark in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Here's a question. Is Cain's mark a sign of guilt or grace? Is Cain's mark a sign of his guilt or God's grace and protection? Yes. It's both. And so for all of the negative fallout in this chapter, we still see a projection. God's grace at work for human flourishing at good in the midst of all of this mess. Some good things happen in this chapter. Life goes on and it's not all bad. Our better angels are still at work by the grace of God. Human culture and flourishing. There's three descendants born, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. As far as I know, those biblical names are not making a comeback yet, although I don't know. But at the root of each of these three names, in the Hebrew, the original language, it's production. We're still able to make things and flourish in this way. Later in the chapter we read, verses 20 and 21, Adabor Jabel, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jubal, those who play the lipe and the, the harp, the larp, the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and of iron. So we have agriculture and art and iron being made and forged. Theologians through the centuries have called this God's common grace. Despite all of our sin inside us and around us, and it's real, 
this is a great world. I see leaves of green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And when I think about this mark of Cain, it brings me forward to the sign of the cross. And if the mark of Cain is the hinge, the crux of this story, the cross where Jesus died is the hinge, literally the crux of the entire story of the scriptures. Question, is the cross of Jesus a sign of our guilt or God's grace? Yes, it's both. Where Jesus died, confirming that our guilt, our sin before a holy God is real, but also the hub, the fountainhead of the grace of God for any and all that would receive this forgiveness. An ancient church reflector and thinker, Melito of Sardis, said this about the cross and then included the language from this story. And so he, Jesus, was raised on a cross and a title was fixed, indicating who it was who was being executed. Painful it is to say, but more terrible not to say, he who suspended the earth is suspended. He who fixed the heavens is fixed. He who fastened all things is fastened to the wood. The master is outraged. God is murdered. And we see the final resting place of the curse upon Cain traveling forward to the cross. The Apostle Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so we can own both, our guilt and God's grace by faith. The Apostle Paul also says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As we sing occasionally here on Sunday mornings about Jesus. For I am his and he is mine. I love singing that line. For I am his and he is mine. If you're weighing the things of faith. If you're taking steps away from Jesus. Come back. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say with body and soul. I am his and he is mine. And as we look inside, we fight sin. We fight sin. It's crouching at our door. A lot of famous phrases in English to this day come from this passage. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And when we look around, and when we see good things in the world, they're not false positives. They're not false flames. They're not false dawns on a rock that's just going to burn. They're foretastes of a new reality when Jesus returns, the trump resounds, the Lord descends and makes all things new again. And every good, every bright and beautiful thing that you see in this world is a reminder to you that the best is yet to come so that we can get up and get up and get up and get up. I was re-watching again with my kids, Captain Marvel, the Marvel movie. There's a great sequence towards the end of the movie when there's a montage of Captain Marvel over the years. She's knocked down and she gets up. She's knocked down and she gets up. She's knocked down and she gets up. She's knocked down and she gets up again. 
the end of this passage. Another line is born, verses 25 and 26, and they're calling on the name of the Lord again. Reality is reflected, and hope is projected. And this is where we'll wrap up. This is our mission. We live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus here in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs. That means speaking. Tell people about Jesus. Jesus is really good. Whether you're an old-timer or a new-timer, grace is really, really awesome. And when we invite people to take steps of faith towards Jesus, it's not, hey, everything about your life is going in an awesome direction already. Here's a cherry on top. It's instead a radical call where Jesus himself said, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, that's the one that's going to find it. A radical renovation of everything, a central core processor changed out. But it's worth it because this is how we live. Speak of that and serve of that. Cause God's common grace to flourish by serving and showing up. Whether it's in your town or your school or your community, the people that care are the people that show up. The older I get showing up, I, I was going to used to say maybe that's 50% of the deal. It's about 90 showing up. Show up for good. And then also live it together as we are united by the grace of Jesus. I was reading again recently. So if the show of the moment is Ted Lasso, more than one person is called the book of the 20th century. A travelogue by a woman named Rebecca West, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. Her travels through what was then Yugoslavia. Now it's Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia. She was not a person of faith. But she went into a church at one point and said, oh, this is how the world should be. And then she left and saw the disparity. She sees people that are moneyed, the gentry. She sees in the language of her time the gypsies, the indigenous nomadic peoples that are poor and ostracized. In church, they were together. I look back at the gypsies outside the church who are now scaling the hill, huddled under the harsh wind that combed its crest. Life had become infinitely poorer since we left church. The richness of the service had been consonant with an order of society in which peasants and gypsies were on an equal footing, and there was therefore no sense of deprivation and need. But here outside was a threat of a world where everybody was needy, since the moneyed people had no art and the people with art had no money. Something alien and murderous had intruded here into the pattern, and its virtue has gone out of it. Friends, the good news of Jesus is that his grace and mercy has intruded, has pervaded, has flooded our world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey! Could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>